This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The Western world is united in its condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian authorities say it is an all-out full-scale war which has claimed dozens of casualties, both civilian and military, and they have declared martial law. Russia claims it has taken out Ukrainian air defenses, and Ukrainian leaders are urgently asking the West to provide anti-aircraft and anti-missile defenses. Meantime, there are financial sanctions against Russia. Sanctions experts say the Putin regime can resist for some time. Last night, there was the bizarre spectacle of his declaration of a, quote, military operation in the midst of a United Nations debate. Even more farcical, it was the Russian envoy who presided over the Security Council debate on the matter. Now, given that NATO is not willing to send in troops, what can the West do? What should the West do? Do stronger sanctions are being promised? Uh, but what do you think? 416 360 0740, toll free 1 866 740 And now I'd like to bring in Janice Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Toronto branch, and Dr. Andrei Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, who teaches about the Soviet Union, Ukraine, and nationalism. Thank you all for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby. Good afternoon. Um, let us begin with Peter. Uh, I, do you have family there? Have you been in touch with family and friends over there? Uh, we have, uh, and we do. Uh, it, it's been challenging for my wife's family that's actually in the eastern part of Ukraine, which is, was already just 100 kilometers from, from the conflict zone. Uh, she hasn't been able to get through. Unfortunately, we believe the phone lines are already down. Uh, and power is being cut in a lot of areas. So it's uh, very disheartening. Mm-hmm. And have you uh, reached people in other parts of the country? Uh, yes, uh, I have. And uh, it's uh, it's pretty much everything you're seeing in the, in the news. Uh, people are scared. Uh, people are angry. Uh, people are reacting in different ways. Men are joining the reserves. Uh, other families are trying to find places uh, for safety. Uh, some people have uh, ended up being in, in, in bomb shelters and cave. It's a, a lot of uh, people are hiding out in the subways. Um, it's um, it's horrific. It's beyond words. Janice Stein, it's been called uh, the worst aggression since the Second World War. How do you see it? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. It is clearly an act of unprovoked aggression. Um, I watched Putin's speech, as I'm sure we all did, and you saw a very angry, uh, revisionist, um, and aggressive leader with a group of really terrified advisors around him who are clearly unable to offer any kind of dissenting opinion. I would just say, and this is just it's, it's tragic uh, for Ukrainians, I think... Uh, Russia will pay dearly for this over time. Um, it will retard Russia's development. It will cut it off in many important ways from the West for a decade. Um, I think this will prove to be a major miscalculation by Vladimir Putin. 
Dr. Zayarnyuk, you teach about the Soviet Union. Uh, a lot of the commentary is that this is what Putin is trying to do to recreate the Soviet Union. He's been called a megalomaniac. Uh, what's your take on that? I would be careful with historical parallels. The Soviet Union, after World War II, didn't annex a single piece of territory. So what Putin did in 2014 and now again is actually unprecedented, even from the point of view of Soviet leadership and Soviet, Soviet history. I mean, the last time Ukrainian cities uh, saw an attack like this one was at the beginning of World War II. On the 1st of September 1939, when Germans bombed Lviv, and then in June 1941, when they, they bombed Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, and other Ukrainian cities. Uh, so how do you see it now? Is this just the beginning? That's one of the warnings that uh, it's not going to end with Ukraine. I mean, it's not the beginning. It's the war. It's an all-out war. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. It's a catastrophe for the international law. And it also tells something about the West and the whole architecture of security the West is pretending to uphold. The West did too little, too late to help Ukraine. And even now, after those airstrikes, with the combat taking place all over Ukraine, there is no real help coming from the West. Uh, Janice Stein, I mean, the West obviously is reluctant into uh, getting into all-out war with Russia, which has nukes. Um, is what the West is doing remotely enough? I don't think that's the right question, Libby. Um, I think the, the question, frankly, if we look back at history, and I agree with Andre that the Soviet Union is very different was very different from the current Russian regime. But if we look back, not once, this is not a new story. Um, not once did the West intervene um, against what the Soviet Union was doing in Eastern Europe. We didn't in 1956 in Hungary. We didn't in 1968. So what is stunning to me is the expectation that we would um, and I think um, the message for me is how important it is that we be careful and not raise false expectations uh, among the people who are truly the victims of this so that there's realism about what the West will do and what it won't do. I mean, I've been watching pictures all morning of open highways in Ukraine, um, which is almost inconceivable to me that those highways were not mined and booby-trapped for Russian convoys that were going to roll down them. Um, that, that understanding that when you live next to a great power, you are on your own, um, is absolutely fundamental. Peter Sturen, what do you say to that? Well, you know, uh, I can only compare it to 1939, uh, and when Nazi Germany invaded uh, Poland, and really the West was not engaged, uh, didn't really want to get involved, and we know how that ended. So, you know, we can talk about that this is unprecedented and uh, Ukraine is on its own, but it, once Ukraine falls, if it does, and I pray it doesn't, um, we, you, we're going to be facing, Russia is going to be standing shoulder to shoulder to NATO countries. Um, do we want that? Do we want us to be back in, the, in this kind of confrontation, nuclear powers facing each other? Isn't it best to try to help Ukraine right now stand as an independent country? I realize we're not going to see boots on the ground from other countries, no. but there are devastating economic sanctions that the West can do. They can cut off all Russian banks immediately. They can cut them off from the SWIFT international payment system. These are the kind of measures that were taken uh, at the start of World War II. Um, so what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for yet even further aggression? Do you, does everyone believe that Mr. Putin and Russia are just going to stop at Ukraine and be happy with that empire? Or are they going to push further? 
Uh, no one can say for sure, but I doubt that that's going to be the result. And so from our point of view, there's a lot of things that the West can do. They're behaving like a pariah state. Let's treat them as such. Well, uh, I just saw the head of the European Union saying that uh, she was going to present a new package of sanctions today uh, for approval. Janice Stein, is that going to be enough? You know, I couldn't agree more, by the way, that there should be the most severe sanctions um, against financial institutions, oligarchs, um, there should be embargoes on the export of technology in critical areas. And I think all that will happen. Um, no, it will not be enough. And I think that's what's important um, to recognize. Uh, you watch that speech uh, that Putin gave. He gave the most revisionist interpretation of history that's imaginable. And nothing, frankly, was going to stop him. I do think it's important, Olivia, to recognize the difference, unfortunately, between being a NATO member and a non-NATO member. Um, that is why President Biden, from day one, months ago, took off the table the use of boots on the ground, the deployment of soldiers to Ukraine. That is very, very different if it's Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, Poland, who are now NATO members and can invoke Article 5. NATO is a collective security organization. So I think we have to be very careful about how we talk about Ukraine. And this is, this is deeply unfair to the Ukrainians and deeply unjust. But it has never become a, a member of NATO, not for want of trying, but because NATO members themselves recognize how challenging that is. But we can't generalize. These are not dominoes that are going to fall. Let me give the numbers out uh, if you are, excuse me, part of the Ukrainian-Canadian community or um, if you have an opinion on this. There are many, many Ukrainians in Canada. It's the largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world, and they are very concerned. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, Andre, do you think that the West should be taking another tack, doing something other than what it's doing? Well, we'll see what the West is doing once they announce sanctions. So far, I've seen reports from CNN Germany that um, European Union, for example, uh, hasn't decided on uh, disconnecting Russia from SWIFT's global payment system, which is actually something the Ukrainian government has been demanding, asking for. Um, so it all depends on how severe um, those Western sanctions And those sanctions are coming too late. I mean, Putin started his invasion back in 2014. This is the year when he committed his original move into Ukraine, committed the international crime of aggression. And the West did impose some sanctions back then, but they didn't actually hurt Russia much, Um, even the Russian elite. we're not talking about the country and its people. Um, okay, there's some strange noise on the line. Uh, Peter Sturin, um, what do you say to, to, to Janice and to Andre uh, if there are more economic sanctions? Is that satisfactory in any way? Well, uh, we can debate whether or not it'll have any effect. But uh, it may not have any effect on Mr. Putin, but it would certainly have effect on some of the oligarchs that have billions all across the world. Um, so there are many things that could possibly set off another uh, chain of events where maybe uh, Mr. Putin starts to lose his stranglehold on, on, on his own government, because uh, I'm sure a lot of those people are not very happy to be losing assets and money that they may have. Um, in other countries. So I think that that's, that there are things that could, 
could make a difference. We don't know if they will, but if, if we don't do anything, uh, then we could just stand by and watch uh, one of the greatest uh, humanitarian crises uh, in modern history. Um, there's 40 million people that are in Ukraine. We're not talking about a small, you know, small little territory. We're talking about a country the size of France uh, and a major European country. Um, so I think standing by and doing nothing uh, would be absolutely tragic. Janice Stein, uh, what I saw last night at the United Nations, I mean, the only way I could describe it was farcical. Yeah. For sure. I mean, this has to be very dispiriting, very, very dispiriting um, for anybody who believes that we have a rules-based international order, to quote a phrase that is used over and over again. We had the ambassador from Russia, who was the president of the Security Council. I know. Um, Unbelievable. It really was. And I, I don't think we can say anything uh, about the theater that was produced last night. It, it bore no relationship to what was happening on the ground, um, frankly, to what Russia was doing. And it's just very, very dispiriting. Uh, you know, I had a question from um, one of your listeners about why it was not possible for the Security Council to remove Russia. This is an architecture that was set up right after World War II in which the five great powers have vetoes. And they don't vote themselves off the Security Council. So no state that tangles with one of those five great powers, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, or France, can seek any redress or support from the UN Security Council, as sad as that is. So what's the point? I mean, what's the point? What's is the point? Of be, the UN. The point, to be very blunt, Libby, is great powers write their own rules. So the UN is very useful if aggression is committed um, by anybody but one of those five. And that covers a fair amount of cases, but it's not useful when it's one of those five. It can do nothing. It's wholly paralyzed. I mean, uh, a lot of people see this as just a, a total assault on democracy. Is is that overstating the case, Peter? No, not not in the view of uh, most Ukrainians and most people that stand for for democratic values and principles. Ukraine is a fledgling liberal democracy that that's the path they've chosen, and and it was working. Yes, there are, there are issues. There are corruption and all those things that we see sometimes in other countries as well. But to, to kind of stand back and say, well, that's the way the world is. Well, what if, what if this was some other country that's, that's not part of NATO, that we would just sit back and say, okay, major power. What, what if China decides tomorrow that it's okay for them to take Taiwan back? Well, we're not going to fight, but that's okay. Well, probably we, we won't. <laughs> That's next. Um, I hate to be cynical. Um, Andre, in the past, the view of Putin was um, he's a strong man, he's an autocrat, but he was he's a rational actor. Some people are changing their opinion now. Do you have a view of that? Uh, and... Uh yeah, I think it's clear. I mean, it's been clear since at least 2008, that in his 2014, that he lives in a, in a world of his own. He is out of touch with reality. He started as a kleptocrat, but uh, now he cares about ideology. He has a mission, he believes, to make Russia great again. Uh, there is no place for Ukraine in that vision of his. He is a nationalist lunatic. I mean, for me, it's obvious. Janice? uh, I agree. I agree completely with what uh, Andre just said. Um, And and let's just add one other factor. Uh, You know, by the way, um, uh, what Andre has just said, President Macron said. Uh, He's known President Putin for quite a long time, and he said there has been a real change 
Um, Andre dated back to 2008. I think it happened earlier, um, actually. But I think it's really been exacerbated by the last two years. Vladimir Putin is a germaphobe of the highest order. And so he's been in the most concentrated period of isolation now for two years. His first trip out of Russia was to the Beijing Olympics. He sees almost nobody except five or six senior KGB advisors, former KGB who are his closest advisors. And we've all seen these pictures of the long table that separates him from everybody else. I don't think his connection with reality, to use Andre's words, has been improved um, by living for almost two years in complete isolation. That's why, frankly, we can discuss instruments and whether they work or they don't work. I do think he's living in a world that he has constructed with a set of beliefs that are almost impervious to any kind of evidence. He was going to do this. And we saw him in that uh, very strange meeting, basically humiliating, browbeating his oh. associates. How does he keep getting away with that? Well, you know, that I thought was actually the, the moment of truth, because anybody that um, has a circle of advisors that are so intimidated, that are so fearful to provide any kind of critical feedback, um, that is the definition of an authoritarian leader. And, and he, we saw that acted out <laughs> in, in real time. He mocked the chief of his intelligence services. So nobody is going to contradict him. No senior general is going to contradict him. No senior intelligence advisor is going to contradict them. And from the moment you saw that, you knew he was going to do this and he was going to go all out and all the way and nothing that the West was going to do, um, whatever, whatever, however the West responds now, and I agree with my colleagues, but however the West responds now, uh, that is for the future and the impact on Russia in the future. It's not going to have an impact um, in stopping him from the course that he has chosen to undertake. It's, it's tragic. I'm going to give the numbers out again. We do have a few minutes left in this segment. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We are talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, the terrifying events that are unfolding there. Peter Sturin, uh, what is the community here about to work on next? Well, uh, obviously, people uh, will be uh, uh, joining uh, different rallies. We're we're planning uh, a very large one for this Sunday in front of uh, Toronto City Hall. We've been in contact with the with the mayor's office. Uh, mayor Mayor Tory will be uh, likely joining us as well. Um, people will be doing. There was already uh, ad hoc demonstrations. I understand there's people in front of the Russian consulate today. Um, the French consulate is actually organizing EU consul generals that I'll be joining them today at three o'clock. So people will be out uh, demonstrating and and um, obviously raising awareness. Not everybody watches uh, CNN and, and knows exactly what's going on. So um, our our goal right now is to to let uh, let all Canadians know the, the the horrors that are going on and. And we pray that uh, somehow uh, Ukrainian forces are, are able to at least stem some of uh, some of the probable, the probable atrocities that would follow if Russia were to fully take over the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I mean, everybody here seems to be on the same page. Uh, if you want to talk about bizarre, bizarre spectacles in Parliament in Queen's Park, we had the head of the Green Party thanking the Premier, and everyone agreeing that they are standing in solidarity with Ukraine, which uh, I guess is a good thing, but not something we're used to seeing here. Let's take a call from Bill in Brampton. Hello, Bill. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, other than economic sanctions, the best way to, to solve this is sports. Sports can start wars. Sports can stop wars. So we start with the World Cup soccer. If Russia qualifies, stay home. We don't want you. If we have uh, world champions ice hockey, Russia stays home. The Olympics, 
Russian athletes, stay home. Champions League soccer, Russian team qualifies. Sorry, pal, you're not in. Stay home and see how the Russian people like that. They'll be an uprise. I guarantee you. Okay, Bill, thanks for that. Uh, it, it, it seems like it's a little bit late for that kind of thing. Uh, Andre, what do you think? But uh, it's simply part of the larger complex of isolating Russia. Um, I think the trade economy is more important than sports. So total trade embargo, especially on Russian oil and gas, uh, disconnecting Russia from SWIFT. Those would be two absolutely necessary uh, measures. And I, I think that uh, a, a big soccer game was just pulled from Russia, if I'm not mistaken. We'll have to... Uh, yes, it was the UEFA uh, Champions yeah. League uh, finals just scheduled to be played in St. Petersburg, and they moved it uh, to another location in Europe. And is, is, is that just a drop in the bucket? No, you know, I agree uh, that... that uh, Economic uh, sanctions are, m- are much more powerful than sports. But if we can cut them off from all of these events, I mean, it's not unprecedented. In, in 19, uh, 1980, uh, when the Olympic Games were in Moscow, many countries, U.S., Canada included, didn't join, didn't go to those Olympic Games. And it was, uh, and it was an embarrassment to the Russians at the time. So uh, clearly... If if that happens, uh, why not throw them out of uh, so- soccer leagues and 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 out of the Olympic Games? We know they uh, they don't like to play fairly anyway uh, by by doping their athletes. So let's uh, let's 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 make it clear. And then they, again, it, all of these things added up together may actually change the tide, and maybe Russians will finally stand up to their dictator. Okay, we are uh, running out of time here, so I'm going to go around the table for what you want to leave us with, starting with uh, Dr. Zayernyuk. Well, I would urge everyone to join protests against Russian aggression, demand sanctions from um, your MP, from our Prime Minister, and uh, stand to debate. Janice Stein. Libby, I'm thinking about public reaction at home. It's easy to make statements of support, but the economic sanctions that we've all been talking about are taking place in an inflationary environment. Canadian consumers are going to see increases in prices as a result, and what I'm hopeful, but we have a lot of work to do to explain why it matters, I'm hopeful that the public will continue to support these economic sanctions once they understand they're not only going to bite Russia, they're going to bite in the West as well. Hmm, that's a really good point. Uh, Peter Storen, last word to you. Thank you. Um, all I ask um, is that uh, Canadians continue to stand for freedom, for democracy, uh, and uh, to let their politicians know, and that um, further aggression by Russia is not normally not acceptable, but we will not stand for it. So, thankful, thank you to all the Canadians uh, that that have stood with us and continue to stand with us. Okay, uh, thank you so much. Uh, on a very disturbing day, uh, talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we'll be following this in everything that follows. Thanks so much, Dr. Andre Zayernyuk, Peter Sturen, and Professor Janice Stein. Bye-bye. Thank you, Libby. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we are taking a break, and when we come back, well, we had an Emergencies Act here. It was revoked. Uh Surprise. Yesterday, we will be talking about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
In a surprise move yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau revoked the Emergencies Act just three days after it passed in Parliament. He'd been facing widespread accusations of overreach and the threat of court challenges. Now, Ontario followed suit, eliminating the province's emergency measures. So what's the fallout from all of this? Uh, The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president at Enterprise, as well as Muhammad Ali, a liberal strategist and senior consultant at Crestview strategy in Ottawa. Hi, and thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jason, uh, what's your take on this? Were, first of all, were you surprised that it was revoked so quickly? Um, a little, a little quicker than I thought. I, I, you know, as you know, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Trudeau, but I, 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 from an analysis perspective, I thought it was a brilliant move to pull it off. You know, he sort of, everybody is talking about how, you know, he's uh he wants it on forever and, you know, all these kinds of things. And uh, he pulled it off and changed the game in terms of the debate. So I really thought it was a smart political move. I thought uh, there was a lot of overreach uh, in, in some of the some of the I think he, he was they were stinging from some of the criticism that was going to start to get louder in terms of the banks and people freezing accounts and, you know, people who really had not much to do with the protest other than giving twenty five, fifty, or $100 or whatever there was going to be. And there will be a bunch of people traipsed in front of parliamentary committees to tell that story. And I think he was getting ahead of that. So I, I thought it was a pretty smart political move to uh, get ahead of it and, and, and change the game a little bit. And Mohammed, what do you think? Uh, I agree. With you. I, uh, I was a little surprised that it, he, pulled, uh, he pulled it back uh, earlier. I thought he probably would take it to the weekend just to uh, ensure that all things were taken care of, you know, there, there, there is threats ongoing about going back to the Ambassador's Bridge. Uh, Surrey has seen some, there's a Coots uh, threat there as well. So I thought he'd probably wait a little bit longer. And there's the, you know, the encampments around Ottawa right now where some of the convoys, uh, protesters had, had um, retreated to. Uh, so I was a little surprised, but, you know, I think he's been consistent with it, at least saying that he's taking it day by day, talking to law enforcement, uh, what they need is what they're providing, and, and they've all acknowledged, and even the Premier of Ontario said, look, this this was the game changer we needed to ensure that the blockade ended, uh, address where the finances are coming from to support the ongoing occupation, um, and it was mission accomplished. And now things have stabilized and allowed the Prime Minister to pull back on the Emergency Act, which you know I think he rightfully did, and it was a smart move. Well, um, yeah, you both agree that it was a smart move. I, I find that there's a lot of murkiness around what those financial sanctions were. Some of those, you know, Chuck Strahl came out screaming that there was a, a woman who donated 50 bucks, a single mom whose account was frozen, and that was uh, not accurate. So uh, at this point, you know, I think it's unclear. I've read very contradictory statements on exactly what those financial powers are under the Emergencies Act. Jason? Well, I mean, the broad... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the broad strokes are that, uh, you know, the RCMP was able to send lists to financial institutions of of people's... um, records to uh, seize or to, uh, to to freeze and 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 mistakes will have been made um, uh, you know I mean it's uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this was not necessary or that you know but it's a pretty draconian step um, there wasn't much in the way of recourse if you know if mistakes did happen and um, this is why I think the government was so quick um, over the last couple of days to come out with some communications saying, hey, wait a second, no, we're, there's a process for unfreezing these. Um, we're not going to, you know, sort of target the the little guys. We're going to go for the go for the people who, um, who um, um, you know, sort of were leading the protests. I will say, like, you know, as, as someone who comes from the conservative bent, the, the only times where I thought the prime minister was way over his skis, um, I, I thought the first, uh, I thought he was a little bit absent for the first little bit of the protest. I thought um, when they seized the GoFundMe and the GoSend2 or whatever the two, uh, Give you know, $9 million and $8 million or whatever, the, you know, when you seize that kind of money um, without much recourse and without, you know, sort of 
I thought they were well out over their skis and then this banking stuff. And, and they've corrected a lot of that stuff to get back in the center of where they probably need to be. So from a political perspective, I think when they felt like they were at risk, they, they acted pretty quickly to get back into alignment. But a lot of people were still asking the question, uh, Mohammed, why is it that at the Ambassador Bridge, for instance, it was uh, dealt with before the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act? It was done under the provinces. And, and why could why was it necessary in Ottawa? I think it, it there's a couple of things. And, and um, it's been kind of outlined by, by law enforcement. The way that the Ambassador Bridge is, you know, logistically structured, it's a little bit more easier to clear out and keep everyone sort of in one contained area. Uh, and in considering that it came after the Ottawa occupation, I think law enforcement was a little bit more well prepared and able to diffuse the situation before it got way too out of hand. Uh, where the Ottawa one it was is quite widespread and integrated into in different communities, uh, neighborhoods throughout downtown Ottawa, and they mobilized an auto police force that was largely dysfunctional uh, from the leadership side of things. So I think that's why you saw the prime minister trying to pull back and look, the auto occupation, which was the main focus, and which is the Emergency Act was largely geographically specific to where it needed to be implemented. Uh, it, you know, it was mission accomplished. Now, I think on the finance side of things, one of the things that probably not just the government, but I think a lot of other folks, is the use of cryptocurrency uh, to raise money for supporting the convoy. I mean, that was an area where there isn't really any existing legislation that can really address that through FinTrack. And I think now we will probably see some uh, legislation come through soon that tries to entrench how cryptocurrency can be used, similar to how they were able to kind of stop you know, the GoFundMe and such. Mm, I, I don't even know how you get your uh, hands on it. Let's take uh, let's take a couple of calls. Uh, James, James in Etobicoke, hello. Well, hello. I, great show as always. Thank you. Um, I put a lot of weight in what one of your guests said, and that was what I was going to call about. I mean, over the weekend, I saw the current chief of police in Ottawa, a former police chief in Ottawa, the mayor of Ottawa, and Doug Ford, all saying that the putting in the Emergency Act was necessary. So I'm a little disturbed or surprised that the Conservatives in Parliament voted en masse, almost a whipped vote, against those opinions of people who are actually, you know, on the street and a little closer to the action than perhaps a lot of media pundits. Well, there are uh, different kinds of conservatives. Uh, there you go. And they're going to have to decide which kind they are when they elect a new leader. Yeah, I just think there was a lot of opinions of people who were dealing with the situation and close to the action and the problem who felt that the act was necessary. Thank okay, you. James. Thanks. Thank you for that. Let's go to Kathy in Niagara. Hello, Kathy. Hi. Um, I'm going to change a little bit. I'm just thinking that with all that's, that's gone on in Canada, it's a joke when you see what's going on in the Ukraine. We take democracy for granted. See how fast somebody can come in and take over? We've got to be careful. This is ridiculous, uh, uh, complaining about having to be shut down for uh, a couple of years. What about the people that had the blitz in, in England? You didn't see them running around crying that they were sick and tired of being bombed every night. Uh, Okay, Kathy, thanks for that. You know, and I think that uh, when we look at what is happening in Ukraine, it, it, you know, our our situation here certainly pales in comparison. There is absolutely no question about that. Right now, I have to take a break, but we will be back with more on this. We had an Emergencies Act. Uh, we'll try to drill down on exactly whether there's going to be lasting political fallout on this, on, on both sides, conservatives, NDP, liberals, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. We have been talking about the events that unfolded here over the last few weeks. First, there was the invocation of the Emergencies Act for the first time ever. There was a lot of criticism, accusations of overreach. And then yesterday, poof, the Prime Minister revoked the Act just three days after it was actually passed by Parliament. Uh, we have both our liberal and conservative strategists here saying that was a smart move. So let's talk a little bit about the fallout from this. Jason, does this completely kind of uh, give Justin Trudeau uh, a blank slate on this. Uh, the other thing that he came under fire for was that people were saying, hey, at this time, he should have tried to bring people together, and, and instead he was driving a wedge. Yeah, it's great. It's a great point. So um, just a couple of things, and I think it's important to go back to one of your callers talked about whether or not the Emergency Act was required or not, and I thought it was a, a, a couple of really good points, and, you know, the the mayor, the police chief, all that, you know, we use the, the powers for the emergency act. Cause I think it's tied to the question that you asked, which is, um, so it, this didn't happen anywhere else. I, you know, you're, um, Mohammed, you said, you talked about, uh, the, the, um, the bridge in Windsor, Toronto, for example, because it was concerned about, about, um, its hospital infrastructure on university Avenue being disrupted, made sure that this kind of a protest didn't catch, uh, sort of catch wind and 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 set up shop in in Toronto and in Ottawa, the people who I think messed this up from the very start. You ask about political fallout. So slow, Chief Slowly was essentially sent packing in the middle of the protest, and like lo and behold, within a couple of days of him being gone, um, the mayor, police services board, and and cops got together, used the act, and and got everybody out of there within a, 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 a few days. And the mayor, who's not running again, um, obviously sort of didn't take this seriously. You're talking about an intelligence and policing failure of epic proportions in Ottawa that did probably ultimately require this act to take to, to, to take care of it. But if it would have been handled sort of, I think, smartly and, and they would have known what was coming at the very beginning, this probably could have lasted. And you're in Ottawa, I think, Mohammed, like a lot less than 22, 25 days. Um, um, the prime minister has divided us over the last. He's one of the most divisive politicians in Canadian history. Um, every time he can sort of press the sore, he does. I understand why it's to his political advantage. He just won an election last year, essentially campaigning against unvaccinated people. I understand, um, you know, why why he does what he does, but it, actions have consequences, and those do have consequences for him. And he's going to go down as when he when he finally retires or loses an election. I mean, he's going to go down with essentially thirty percent of the populace sort of liking him. But so I think I think there is some political fallout for my party. There was some members of parliament, provincial or parliament who got really excited about supporting the idea of the truckers' protest at the beginning, and as it turned into something a little more nefarious over the over time and became a, a lot less popular, um, there's there's are some some folks in my party as well that are going to have to sort of answer for how that uh, how that all worked. But I mean, fundamentally, the provincial government, the federal government, did an okay job of discharging their responsibilities. And I think if I would lived in Ottawa, man, I'd be asking a lot of hard questions of the mayor, the council and the, and the police services board up there. You're talking about provincial conservatives, but uh, I'm, I'm wondering about federal conservatives, especially one who is the only declared candidate for leader, Pierre Polyevre. Yeah, I mean, Pierre, Pierre is 100%. I mean, he's the odds-on favorite to be the leader of our party um, at the outset and over the course of this protest. Um, I think tried to hold, uh, it's a very fine line, to hold Mr. Trudeau to account for dividing us, to stand up for the, the idea of freedom and, and, and the ideas that some of the uh, protesters were putting forward while not getting too far out there. I mean, a very hard, hard line to walk. Um, you know, he's going to have to answer some tough questions, I know, but he is the odds on favorite to win our, to win the leadership of our party for a lot of different reasons. He is the kind of conservative, frankly, can bring our movement together. It's been splintered a little bit over the last couple of, couple of years. Um, he appeals to libertarians. He appeals to small government conservatives. He appeals to people who might have been flirting with other parties. So, um, you know, but yeah, there's there's some uh, some square circles he's going to have to square he, here at the end of he, it. He doesn't appeal to people who are centrists. Well, I mean, um, you know, we've uh, you know the thing is, Justin Trudeau's proved proven the last couple of times that you only need about thirty one or thirty two percent. I mean, he's got the lowest numbers in Canadian history that's ever won an election, and it's, it's not even close. And so, 
you know, if Polyev, for example, Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Shear got about 35%. If, if Polyev could get two, three, four, five percent more, a few more votes, frankly, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and rural Ontario and into suburban Ontario, you know, it, it, you don't need much when you're the conservative leader to do much better than, uh, than we've done in the past. So listen, I'm not saying he's going to win. I'm just saying he's the odds on favorite to be leader and he's got a really good chance and he's going to have to, uh, He's going to have to, over the next couple of years, up his game to uh, to, to win the next election. Mohammed, uh, who ends up wearing this over the long term? Uh, you know, I agree with with Jason that the you know folks in Ottawa, uh, particularly the mayor of Ottawa, is going to wear this a lot. Um, following the you know, chief, former chief, slowly, uh, you know, you saw the the entire almost auto police board from the uh, that are appointed by the city of Ottawa. All were kicked off or resigned, and um, from the failures there. So there is a lot of local um, political fallout here in the city of Ottawa. A lot of tough questions being asked. I think for Mayor Watson, he, you know, given that he's not running again, will have a hard time trying to uh, clear this off as sort of his legacy. Um, you know, he's, he's had a pretty tough year with uh, with the LRT situation, and then with this, so. It's not a way to kind of go out where any leader would want to go out after, you know, a long, long term uh, serving. Uh, so I think there's a lot of that falls there. There will be political fallout for, you know, I think all levels uh, of government, on t- in, you know, the, the provincial government with Doug Ford feeling this. Uh, you're going to see this with the prime minister also having to be the first one to invoke the Emergency Act. But uh, I think this is what we came back to the original point of, you know, it was smart for him to take uh, to revoke this at this point and not drag this out because we don't know where public opinion will go. Public opinion still supports the use of up until about yesterday uh, for the uh, for the use of the Emergency Act. That, you know, advocates came out with some polling that hasn't changed much. But ultimately, what we what will be determined is when this public inquiry is is, is launched and the report comes out that it's the table in Parliament within a year. Uh, will determine, and it may get messy, and, and that's where we'll probably see a lot more of like what was done and not done from a logistical perspective, leadership, political, law enforcement. Uh, was the financial restrictions necessary, or were there existing? I think all that will come out in due time. But to Jason's point, there are still those pockets within the Conservative Party that uh, were pandering still to this. And the Andrew Shear, formerly the Conservatives, Pierre Polybe still was playing with and flirting with, with the convoy. Uh, you know, he won't condemn the convoy itself. You know, he condemned the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge and such for, for trade side, which is his brand. But there is still that that issue that, you know, conservatives, that brand exists. Whether it's fair or not for blanketing across the conservatives is another debate. But there is a brand uh, that conservatives still play with some of the fringe elements or more the far right which we saw with some convoy supporters that were asking for the overthrow, calling for the overthrow of the government. Were, yes, uh, we did. Yes. Um, right? They were pandering with, you know, anti-Semitic flags and such. You know, these are, these are literally the organizers. So if, you know, we can argue that not everyone participating believes in overthrowing democratic elected government, doesn't believe in anti-Semitism, but when the organizers and everything's going around, uh, someone has to be held accountable. And, and at the end of the day, uh, you could always have a separate protest. Protests happen all the time in Ottawa uh, for controversial and non-controversial issues, uh, but never to the point where public safety was an issue, where literally the oh, uh, let's, calls for a, a government being overthrown or never, uh, never happened. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Debbie in Toronto. Hi, Debbie. Um, I, I would just like to say that I'm a conservative. I would consider myself sort of a red Tory, and I was... I, I felt completely let down by the federal conservatives during what I considered to be a true, true national emergency. And I, for the first time, I'm not, and I've never been a fan of Justin Trudeau, um, you know, quite the opposite. And yet I found um, that he handled himself with elegance and, and grace this time around. I thought he made the two best speeches he's ever made. And, um, uh, when it came to invoke uh, the Emergencies Act and then uh, why it, it needed to remain 
uh, in, in place. And I, I was shocked that the Conservatives weren't standing shoulder to shoulder uh, with him. And if there was an election called tomorrow, I tell you, I would vote Liberal. And, and that's the first time that I can say that in many, many years. I have voted Liberal. I've been a bit of a swing voter over my life. I'm 62. But um, for the most part, I'm a Conservative. So I, I, was, I felt completely let down by the federal conservatives. Okay, well, I hope uh, they are listening. Debbie, thank you for that. Uh, let's go to Mo in Toronto. Hello, Mo. Hi there. Um, so I think just uh, just right off the bat, um, for myself, I am I, I voted for Justin Trudeau, uh, not in the last election, but the one that was prior. Um, and, uh, and now, however, it's been a wake-up call because when we have Emergencies Act, uh, implemented, um, which was, let's just be really clear, was a War Measures Act uh, back passed in 1914, only time being used in World War One, World War Two, and I believe the October crisis. So when you have something like that being passed, um, it, it tells you, you know, plan A, plan B failed. And so, you know, one of the things that was brought up in, in the House of Commons was, what were those plan A and plan B, right? Um, we don't jump directly to last resort. Uh, for for an emergencies act, especially national national emergencies, so it's really an eye opening thing, um, particularly for me, uh, as you know, if I'm if what my vote will be count for in the future, and uh, in this particular case, you know, it's been revoked, which is a great thing um, because you know the longer you stay in that emergencies act, the more eyes you have on us. So not only just did we have the the truckers had the, the trucker convoy had eyes from the world. But the world got to see how Canada reacts when it comes to uh, it, when it comes to some situations, some tough tough calls. And uh, I don't believe that the Emergencies Act should be the the, the way that we should proceed. Okay, and that kind of made it fairly easy uh, for anybody in the future to enact this. Okay, thanks for that, Mo. Uh, we're uh, running out of time. I am going to give our panelists each thirty seconds, starting with Mohammed. What would you like to leave us with? Well, look, I think um, the situation, and one of your guys said it, like it was an extraordinary moment that the government was forced into utilizing the Emergencies Act. Uh, you know, the current, you know, laws in place just weren't, and the, and the, frankly, the, the services needed to try and clear out the blockade risk weren't there. And so, you know, pulling, uh, you know, utilizing the Emergency Act in this critical moment was, I think, the right decision. And ultimately, we'll we'll set the tone. We'll we'll find out if this is truly necessary when the public inquiry comes out. But uh, I think they made the right decision, and and true to his word, he did it day by day and pulled back on it when it wasn't needed anymore. Okay. And Jason, last word to you. <clears throat> I was um, I, I thought you made a really good point earlier, Mohammed, about um, Windsor. Even though it was slightly different, I will say is not lost on me that um, Windsor and Toronto were able to avoid this kind of, and, and Coots for that matter, even though Coots was a lot more, uh, and Alberta was a lot more, uh, you know, sort of confrontational, that we were able to clear these blockades in these other areas that were frankly um, even more, like the, the Windsor blockade was costing companies that I, I'm aware of millions of dollars per day, right? Like real shifts, real economic ruin. Um, you know, within three or four days, it was it was it was deleted without using the, the emergencies act. I'm sad that it got to that in Ottawa, and I think it was an intelligence policing failure of epic proportions. I think somebody in Ottawa should be held accountable for that. Okay, yeah, and we are totally out of time. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you could not get through, or you have more to add on this, thank you so much, Jason Leader and Muhammad Ali, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.